Good evening. Tonight's Bible reading is from Job 38, verse 1 through to 11. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Good evening, everybody. My name's Mark. Nice to be with you. Uh, two weeks to go in our Job series. Uh, we're going to get almost to the end of the book tonight and then one more week next week looking at the conclusion. Before I begin and uh, before we pray, I just want to make one extra announcement as well, <clears throat> which is to let you know about a conference that's coming up in about three months' time uh, called the MTS Recruit Conference. MTS stands for Ministry Training Strategy. Uh, it is an organisation that helps churches to run traineeships and apprenticeships to prepare people for full-time gospel ministry. It's an organisation we partner with to help run our apprenticeship program here. And uh, their mission is to try and encourage people to consider devoting their life to serving the gospel full-time in some capacity. Now, look, I, cards on the table, I'm biased. I think serving the gospel with your full-time efforts is a very worthwhile thing to do. This conference coming up in a couple of months uh, is going to help you if you're thinking about that and entertaining those kinds of thoughts about what the pathway might be to heading into full-time gospel ministry. Uh, we as a church want to see people raised up for full-time ministry uh, amongst us. We want to encourage you to consider whether that might be something for you. And so to that end, if you're interested in coming along to this conference, we want to pay for you to come. It's over a weekend at the end of September, beginning of October. We think it's that valuable that we will make a way for you to be there. So please come and speak to me if you are interested and you want to have that conversation and entertain those kinds of questions. Uh, and uh, you need to speak to me soon because early birds going to run off, cut off pretty, pretty soon as well. So come and chat with me after the service if you're interested in that. That's it in terms of announcements. Let me pray and then we'll have to think about Job 38 on following. Our gracious God, we do thank you so much that you have given us more than we deserve to know about you. You have revealed so much of yourself. And so we do pray, Lord, that you would please continue to be merciful and gracious to us tonight as we wrestle with these quite confronting words from the book of Job. Help us to see you with the eyes of faith so that we might worship you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in my house, on an almost daily basis, probably a daily basis, probably multiple times a day, I have to ask people to trust me. That's a, that is a regular occurrence for me. Would you please trust me? I think that's a pretty common experience as a parent, particularly if you've got young kids. Uh, if that's not you, though, if you've got young kids and somehow your kids just trust you implicitly 24 hours a day, I would love to know your secret. So again, you can chat with me after the service and teach me how you do it. But I, I find myself often pleading with people, come on, just trust me. And usually it's over pretty trivial things. Uh, usually the way it happens is that the, the kids want something one way, but I'm saying, no, it has to be another way. Please just trust me on this. So I say, no, I'm sorry, you, you can't build a cubby house before school. We, just, we don't have time. You just need to get dressed. Trust me, please. 
Or I say, no, look, you can't watch that TV show. It won't be good for you. You just have to trust me on this. Or I say, no, if you eat any more lollies right now, then you are not going to sleep tonight. Trust me, Catherine. Just trust me. (laughs) No, Catherine's often the one saying that to me, actually. Uh, And, you know, often in those situations, uh, people do. It's lovely when people trust you like that. But sometimes it is is tough, particularly for children, to trust their dad. Because often they don't understand my reasoning for why I'm telling them something. Uh, Often they aren't aware of my experience and why I know better than they do in this particular situation. Often they can't see all of the various kind of factors that weigh into this decision so that they know that there's good reasons behind this choice. And so in those moments when they don't understand, I think it's very easy for them to conclude that I'm being unfair and to think to themselves, well, you know what, If, if I was making that decision, if I was where Dad is right now, I would make a different decision and it would be better than my dad. Now, that's all pretty trivial, but there is a version of that exact dynamic that we experience with our Heavenly Father, where our God calls us to trust him and to obey him, and we don't understand his reasons, and so we have a hard time of it, and we think to ourselves, you know what, God, I think if if I was in your shoes, I would make a different decision. Uh, The actor and comedian Stephen Fry, who is an outspoken atheist, was famously asked what he would say to God if he had the chance. He was interviewed and the interviewer asked him, you know, suppose it's all true. Suppose you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him or her or it? And without missing a beat, Stephen Fry shared his answer. I'd say bone cancer in children. What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is so much misery that's not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say to God. I think there are plenty of people in our world who think along those lines when it comes to their opinion of God, plenty of sceptics, maybe, maybe even some people here today who have similar kinds of opinions about the way God is running the world. Maybe, though, as if you're a Christian here tonight, there's a version of that that you experience as well. Often we do struggle to, un- to trust God when we don't understand. Maybe, for instance, you've been praying for the salvation of your family for years. Maybe you've been praying that God would provide you with a godly husband or wife. Maybe you've been praying and asking God to give you the strength to overcome some particular sin. And thus far, God has not answered that prayer. And so you're starting to think to yourself, what are you doing, God? Why won't you give me this good thing? This is, it's got to be in your best interests, God, to give me this thing. What are you playing at? Or maybe your experience is as you're watching someone in your life suffer, maybe from a a horrible, debilitating disease, and you think, God, how can this possibly be what is best? Surely, God, there is a different way that you can run the universe that would be better than this right now. Now, we probably wouldn't phrase it in exactly the same kind of way as Stephen Fry, but it's pretty easy to feel like God has gonna, is going to have to do some serious explaining to us when we get the opportunity to ask him some questions. Now, of course, that is Job's mindset. 
as we've been looking at this book over the course of this term, Job does not understand, and right now he does not trust God. He has been going through the worst kind of suffering for months, and he's been asking the question, why? Why is this happening, God? Why this way? He's been finding it hard to trust God, and so he's getting confused, he's getting angry, and he's begun to doubt that God is governing well in his world. And in fact, some of Job's words have even gone so far as to accuse God of injustice. It's not just questions, it's accusations. Let me give you one example from Job chapter 9. This is Job kind of reflecting on his own experience here. Job 9, 21 to 24. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It's all the same. That's why I say he, God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he, God, mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, God blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? I mean, those are accusatory words to God coming from a man who does not understand and does not trust in that moment. Now, all along throughout the book, we've seen that Job has been pleading for an audience with God. He wants God to show up so that he'll have the opportunity to explain his righteousness and his innocence to God and to put some questions to God and get some answers about why this is all happening this way. And now here in chapter 38, we come to the point where Job gets exactly what he wants. God shows up, chapter 38, verse 1, and he speaks to God out of the storm. And before we look at what God says, I just want you to notice how remarkable it is that God does this in the first place. This is an act of grace from God, isn't it? Because God does not owe Job an audience with him. He has not promised to answer Job's questions and to speak to him. Nevertheless, God chooses to condescend to sinful humanity as he delights to do. God chooses to shed light and understanding to his people as he delights to do. Don't overlook the fact that this is a remarkably gracious thing of God to do in the first place. But as Job is about to find out, his little chat with God is not going to go the way he thinks it is. Uh, Job expected when God showed up, he would be vindicated, but that's going to have to wait for Job. Instead, God immediately turns the tables on Job. Look what Job, what God says in verse 2. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, like a mere human. I will question you and you shall answer me. Now, that's quite a way to come out of the gate, isn't it? I mean, the first words out of God's mouth here since the beginning of the book. You might expect that God's going to show up on the scene. He's going to say, oh, sorry, friend. Just hang in there, Job. A couple more chapters and it'll all be over. Just, you know. But he doesn't. He shows up and immediately he puts his favourite human on trial. And as we can see, this is not for the purposes of humiliating Job. This is not about intimidating him. Rather, this is about recalibrating Job's perspective on God. Now, why is it that God has come out so hot here? Why is he on the offensive from the get-go? Well, I think there's a clue in the middle of, Job, of God's speech in chapter 40. You get a little bit of a window into why God ha has such displeasure at the way Job has spoken. Look at chapter 40 from verse 7. God reiterates his first words. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. You shall answer me. Verse 8. 
Would you, Job, discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? You see, God's own assessment of the way that Job has been speaking is that Job is more concerned with defending his reputation for righteousness rather than defending God's reputation for justice. And so I think the reason why God comes out of the gate here hot is because God takes his name, his reputation, very seriously. How dare Job, a mere man, question the Almighty, drag God's name through the mud? And so God is going to put some questions to Job, actually. Uh, lots of questions. By my count, there are 71 questions that God asks Job in these chapters. God is going to set the agenda for this chat. And I think that basically there are two big lessons that God is, two big things that God is teaching in these speeches. We're going to look at them first of all in chapters 38 and 39, and then 40 and 41. The first lesson that God teaches Job and us from chapters 38 and 39 is that God's power is unrivaled. God's power is unrivaled. You notice there that uh, in, in, in this courtroom, the first witness that God calls up to the stand is Genesis chapter 1. God basically takes Job on a tour of creation and he asks him question after question after question, which has the effect of making Job feel very small. Now, we're going to skim through these questions tonight, but I want to say to you that the questions are designed to have the exact same effect on you. And so I hope tonight that you leave here feeling very small. I believe that's God's intention for putting these chapters in his word. So here is what the Lord wants to force us and Job to reflect on. Chapter 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Verse 5. Who marked off its dimensions? Who stretched a measuring line across it? Verse 8. Who was it that shut up the sea behind doors? Verse 12. Have you ever given orders to the morning? Verse 16, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? The answer is obvious, isn't it? They all have the same answer. No, 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 I haven't. No, I can't do that. No, it wasn't me. Uh, Job at some point, uh, God rather, at some points in his speech actually gets kind of sarcastic with Job. It's quite interesting to read from verse 19. Look what God says. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? You know the answer to that one, Job? Where, where's the sun come from? Can you take them to their places? You tuck them in at night, Job? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Can you navigate that? Surely you know this, for you are already born. You've lived so many years, Job. You know, and, and what's Job got to say to that? He's got to, oh, actually, uh, no, God, I, I wasn't born when you set up the sun and the, the, the night and the day and that sort of thing. Oh, weren't you, Job? No, actually, I've, I've only been alive for a few years. No, I thought, you were, I thought you were there with me in eternity when we set that whole thing up. No, that wasn't you. No, actually, I, I was only born in 1984. I don't know much about this. You know. Job is put in his place, isn't he? And God continues to ask his questions. Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of snow? Verse 25, who is it that cuts a channel for the torrents of rain? Verse 32, can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons, Job? Can you do that? Can you put the stars in the sky? No. How about just one star, Job? Have you got the power to do that? 
Do you, verse 35, send the lightning bolts on their way, Job? Or are my pastimes starting to be a little bit out of your league? Again and again and again, the only answer to God's questions is no. No, I can't. No, I haven't. No, I wasn't there. But God's not done yet with this tour of creation. Next, he is going to kind of take Job on a bit of a tour of the animal kingdom in chapter 39. Verse 1, he says, Do you know when the mountain goats give birth, Job? Because I do. Every single one from Peru to Pakistan, I'm looking at them the whole time. Verse 9, will the wild ox consent to serve you, Job? You, you, you go and find one in the desert. Give an instruction. Is it going to listen? Because they do my bidding all the time. Verse 19, do you give the horse its strength, Job? Does that come from you? Verse 26, does the hawk take flight by your wisdom? Did you come up with that whole thing with lift and drag? Was that, was that your idea, Job? And on and on and on and on it goes. And I think... You have to ask the question, maybe as you read these chapters in your home groups this week, you were forcing yourself to ask the question, why does God labour the point? Why so many questions? I mean, surely God could have just asked that first question and then been done with it. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation, Job? Case closed. But no, he doesn't. Again and again and again. I think what God is doing in these chapters is showing us the enormous gulf that exists between him and and us. God is the omniscient, omnipowerful, omnipotent creator. We, by comparison, we're ignorant. We don't know a fraction of what God knows. We're impotent. We cannot do a fraction of what God does. God is trying to get us to recognize that and, and to not escape that conclusion. But more than that, he's trying to get us to feel that to feel that gulf that exists between him and us. That's why he overwhelms us with questions, because he wants us to feel how vast and unrivaled his power is. Because when we get, when we get a sense of that, then the, the conclusion is, well, it's God alone who has the authority to plan and to will and to act in his universe without scrutiny from me. Isn't that the conclusion when we see God's unrivaled power? I think that's what Job had forgotten along his journey of suffering, the majesty of God, the, the incomparable greatness and wisdom and power and glory of his creator. And I think, like Job, when we start to find fault with the way that God is running our lives, I think the problem in those moments is that our view of God is too small. But this is no small God, is it? And I think Job is starting to get that point. At the beginning of chapter 40, God kind of pauses. It's almost as if he's kind of catching his breath. And he gives, chance, uh, gives Job a chance to respond. Come on, Job, the floor is yours. What have you got to say? Verse 2, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Come on, Job. What have you got to say for yourself? Job answers the Lord, verse 3. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Job is recognizing God's unrivaled power, and he is being humbled.
Job can see, I think, at this moment, his arrogance of how he has overstepped his rank. And so effectively what Job is doing is withdrawing his case against God. Who is he, a mere mortal, to think that he knows better than the Almighty? And friends, I think where this starts to apply to us is as a warning to us for those times when we feel dissatisfied with the way that God is running his universe. Uh, it's true that in the New Testament, uh, believers are called and invited to cry out to God in our distress. That is unavoidably true. But it's possible to misunderstand that invitation and to think that it's okay to question God's ways, to accuse God of wrongdoing, to drag his name through the mud. And it's critical that we, we don't make that assumption. I want to point out to you something from 1 Peter chapter 5 uh, that has some of these beautiful words in the New Testament, which are kind of like a life preserver to us when we're going through suffering and trials and that sort of thing. Those wonderful words, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Yes and amen. Does that mean that I can tell God that I think he's got it wrong? Does that mean that I can be angry with him for what he's doing in my life? Well, hold on a minute. Remember that that verse comes immediately after verse 6, verse 6 that says, Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up. In other words, bow in submission before your God, and then, and only then, cast yourself upon him because he cares for you. Remember that you are still his creature. By all means, ask your questions of God. I'm not saying not to do that. By all means, pour out the depths of your heart before him. He wants to listen. But remember, friends, and be warned that your posture matters as you do that. Remember what the book of Hebrews says. We ought to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's not be overly familiar with God. Job has been silenced by this point. His arrogance has been exposed. His complaints have been withdrawn. But God is not finished with him yet. God's interrogation is only half done. God's got more to say, more about specifically the topic of evil and suffering in the world. Because it's all well and good to say that God is the all-powerful creator, but that actually doesn't change the fact that we are still living in a world that is desperately broken, in which we experience pain and injustice and perplexity and sorrow. And so what should we think about that? Well, God's got something to teach us. The second lesson from chapters 40 and 41 that God wants us to learn is that his justice is unlimited. God's justice is unlimited. Towards the start of uh, chapter 40, uh, God essentially throws down the gauntlet to Job and he invites Job to take over from him for a little while, if he's able to, and, and particularly to have a go at dispensing justice in the world. Uh, essentially, God says to Job, you know, Job, if you think I'm doing such a bad job at constraining evil and doling out punishment, you think you could do it better. Okay, then clothe yourself in glory, step up and have a go if you think it's so easy. You can read that from verses 9 to 14. We won't look at it in detail now. But with that kind of challenge issued to Job, God then does something very strange. And he introduces us to two rather unusual creatures, the behemoth and the leviathan. And these two creatures are put here to demonstrate to us the extent of God's justice. 
they are creatures which at first glance, as you read through them, they do sound a little bit like the hippopotamus and the crocodile. Maybe you came to that conclusion as you read it in your Bible studies this week. However, both these creatures have some features to them that make them kind of fantastical. They kind of are a little bit more than a hippopotamus and a crocodile. They're able to breathe fire and these sort of things. And the descriptions here are a little bit complex. It's a little bit hard to precisely pin down, you know, what these things look like. And so earlier this week, I did the thing that everybody's doing at the moment. I went online to one of those AI image generators. Have you experimented with these things? They're remarkable. You can tell it to send, make you a picture of anything and it will create something that no eye has ever seen before. And so I asked the AI image generator to make me a biblically accurate picture of the behemoth and the Leviathan. And so here they are. This might help you. Here's the behemoth, according to some computer somewhere, some server, biblically accurate. Uh, and here's the Leviathan, biblically accurate. Now, look, I mean, it's impressive that technology can just generate that in a matter of seconds, right? Uh, it's drawing on the data and the, the descriptions that we've got here in the Bible. And I think there's something helpful about visualizing these creatures because it does help us to see something of the emphasis of these creatures, right? The, the descriptions of them, they do emphasize their size and their sheer strength. That's front and center. The danger that these creatures pose in God's world. That's what the description is all about. Because here are the most terrifying, chaotic, destructive forces in the world personified. Or, well, not personified, animalified, if that's the right word for it. And uh, I actually think as you read these descriptions that it's not unreasonable to think that behind them is a picture of Satan who is himself a creature, a terrifying and destructive one. Uh, you know, in the Bible, Satan is at times described as a serpent. Think back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. Or as you read through the Old Testament, you get to the prophets, he is at times described as a terrifying beast that is at loose in the world. Or when you get to the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, he's pictured there as a great dragon. And so these, these kind of pictures that the Bible gives us of these great, large, untamable, monster-like creatures, they are the Bible's way often of describing Satan. And so I think what God is doing in Job 40 and 41 is making the point that his justice extends even over the forces of chaos and evil in the world, even over Satan himself, expressed by the behemoth and the Leviathan. The remarkable thing about both these creatures that you meet in the book of Job is that actually we find out that the behemoth and the Leviathan are, in some ways, like every other creature that God's already talked about. Both behemoth and Leviathan, they are made by God. They are controlled by God. They are even tamed by God. So look at chapter 41 from verse 1. Job, God is asking Job, can you pull the Leviathan with a fish hook? That, that giant great sea monster, Job. Just throw a line in. You're going to be able to take control of it. You're going to be able to tie down its, its tongue with a rope. No, of course not. Job cannot control such chaotic evil in the world, can he? Verse 2, can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak gentle words? You know, it's kind of that picture of a cat curled up on your lap, just purring politely. Can you do that with Leviathan, Job? You got enough control over evil in the world to do that? No, of course not. But God can, because Satan is just a creature. He is another one that God has made. Martin Luther actually went as far as to, de to describe Satan as God's Satan. 
This is something that we have already learnt in the book of Job. Do you remember back in chapters 1 and 2, we were introduced to the Satan in the heavenly court. And what we see in those first couple of chapters is that God is the one who is keeping Satan on a leash. We saw that already, didn't we? That Satan is roaming the earth, but he has to come to God and ask for permission before he can act. He can only do insofar as God allows him to do. Satan's power is derivative. He's just a creature, and therefore he is subject to God. The point is that if God rules over even Leviathan, then Job can be confident that God's justice has no limits. There is no calamity in this world, no suffering, no evil, no chaos, no sadness that occurs outside of God's good, sovereign rule of the universe. That's the point. What does that mean for us? Quite frankly, that means that for you and I, as we suffer, or as we sit alongside people who are suffering, we can, with absolute confidence, bow down to this sovereign God, knowing that whatever evil may come our way, and as terrible as it may be, it cannot and it will not ever go one millimetre beyond the leash that God has it on. You and I can know with confidence that God is in control. And more than that, we can know that one day this evil will end. Because the place in history where we see God's dominion over Leviathan most clearly is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Leviathan, the great enemy of God's people, he terrifies people and threatens people with the power of sin and guilt and death and ultimately hell. As the Lord Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to crush the head of that serpent, to destroy the power of sin and death and hell and to free God's people and to triumph over those chaotic evil forces by his resurrection. As God puts this to Job, he wants him and us to reflect on the question of whether any of us could do that. Any of us capable of subduing Leviathan? Are we able to conquer the powers of sin and death and hell? Any of us want to have a go at trying to defang Leviathan a little bit? No, of course not. God says, Job, only I can do that, and I have done that. So trust me. Job has now faced the onslaught of God's questions, questions which teach Job about God's power and justice and Job's own lack of it. And so how does Job respond? What lessons has Job learnt from meeting with God? It's possible, put yourself in Job's shoes at this point, it's possible that even after all of this, Job could still be humbly uh, replying to God and saying, thank you, God, for, for, for revealing these things to me. Thank you for speaking, God. But actually, God, you haven't answered my questions. God, you still haven't told me why my family had to die. God, you haven't explained to me why I had to suffer like this. I'm still waiting for those answers, God. It, it would be entirely within uh, reason for Job to reply to God like that at this point, wouldn't it? But that's not at all how Job responds. Look at the chapter 42. See how Job responds to God. Verse 2. He says, I know that you can do all things, God. 
No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. You see, instead of an explanation for his suffering, God has given Job a revelation, a revelation of his character. And Job's view of God has been recalibrated, enlarged. Job's compass is now pointing true north. And Job has realised that this God is infinitely greater, infinitely wiser than him, and that is enough for him. In fact, it's actually more than enough for him. Look what he says next from verse 4. You said, God, listen now, I will speak, I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It, uh, it seems as though this whole process of going through tragedy and pain has actually led Job into a deeper experience of God than he had before. Job is now ready to let go and repent of the arrogant things that he said about God because he knows and trusts God more now, even if he still doesn't understand everything. My ears had heard of you. I, I, I had some vague knowledge of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And, and notice that this, this peace that Job comes to here, this, this comfort and reassurance that he has, it happens to him before he is restored. The, the blessings at the end of the book have not happened yet. Job is still sitting on top of the ash heap at this point. And yet he doesn't want anything else from God. He just wants God. He truly does at this point fear God for nothing. Just because God is God. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. God, I've got nothing left, but I've got you. That is one of the things that suffering teaches us, isn't it? When our health or our prosperity or our security is stripped away, we discover that God remains and that he is enough. You may have heard of uh, a missionary to India uh, from the 20th century named Amy Carmichael. She was uh, a missionary in India for 50 years or so, worked in orphanages and so on. And uh, for most of those 50 years on the mission field, she suffered from intense physical pain. For the last two decades of her life, she was bedridden, basically. Uh, but she said this. She said, it's not relief from pain nor relief from the weariness that follows, nor anything of that sort that is my chief need. Thou, O Lord my God, art my need. In our suffering, friends, it is God that we need to meet with him, to bow before him, to see his glory and his majesty, to hear from him. That is what we need most in our suffering, not an explanation, but a revelation. Perhaps uh, you know of uh, Elizabeth Elliot. She was uh, 29 years old when her husband Jim was martyred in South America. And then eventually uh, Elizabeth Elliot remarried, but she was widowed again by the age of 46. And as Elizabeth uh, reflected on these two great tragedies in her life, she spoke sounding very reminiscent of how Job would speak at this point in the book. She said this, God is God. If he is God... He is worthy of my worship and service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. 
and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. The book of Job teaches us that our good, sovereign God is working in this world and in our lives in ways that are infinitely beyond our ability to comprehend. But we do know that he is good and powerful. And we do know that he is in control even over evil. His justice has no limits. He's demonstrated that to us by sending his son, the Lord Jesus, in his death and resurrection. And so whatever happens, we can be like Job. We can trust him even when we don't understand. And we can say to God, I will be satisfied with your will no matter what. Let me pray for us.